Hello there, and welcome to Spoonful of Medicine. This is a teaspoon mini-sode, so get ready for a dose of some short, sharp, and concentrated paediatric education. In today's mini-sode, we're going to look at hypertrophic pyloric stenosis. It's a condition that we need to have an index suspicion of. It's also something that senior doctors and examiners love asking you about. So grab a cup of tea and let's take five about hypertrophic pyloric stenosis. The true cause of hypertrophic pyloric stenosis is not known. However, it's postulated whether neonatal hypergastrinemia and gastric hyperacidity does contribute. Regardless of what causes it, hypertrophic pyloric stenosis is due to hypertrophy and hyperplasia of the pyloric circular muscle fibres. Over time, the infant develops a gastric outlet obstruction due to the hypertrophy and hyperplasia of the circular muscle fibres. Clinically, this presents with obstructive symptoms that we'll go to in a second. In terms of epidemiology, hypertrophic pyloric stenosis occurs in roughly 1 in 300 live births. This translates to 2 to 5 per thousand live births. Hypertrophic pyloric stenosis usually presents at 3 to 6 weeks of age and latest is up to 12 weeks of age. There is a male predominance with a 5 to 1 male to female ratio and it is more common in Caucasian populations. Risk factors for hypertrophic pyloric stenosis include a family history of hypertrophic pyloric stenosis, especially if mum had it. Erythromycin in early infancy, i.e. less than two weeks of age, in firstborn infants, and also in preterm infants. The classical clinical presentation of hypertrophic pyloric stenosis is non-bilious postprandial projectile vomiting in a baby that is between two to six weeks of age. Do note, however, that less than 2% may have bilious vomits. Nonetheless, the projectile vomiting begins to worsen over several days as the muscle itself hypertrophies. These babies are often regarded to as hungry vomiters because they often want to feed immediately after an emetic episode. However, as the hypertrophy of the muscle and indeed the gastric obstruction progresses, the baby reduces their toleration of feeds. They get hungrier, they repeatedly feed and they continue to vomit up their feeds in this vicious cycle. Over time, the baby can become dehydrated. Clinical examination of a child with pyloric stenosis may find a palpable olive in the right upper quadrant, lateral to the rectus muscle. This is best felt post a vomit and is due to the hypertrophy of the smooth muscle. You may also see visible gastric waves in the abdomen. There may be an audible succussion splash and the child may have features of dehydration. In terms of associated conditions, you may see hypertrophic pyloric stenosis in children with Turner syndrome, tracheoesophageal fistulas, esophageal atresia, and trisomy 18. 
The differential for hypertrophic pyloric stenosis follows the differentials for a vomiting infant, and this can include reflux, gastroenteritis, sepsis, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, gastric webs or gastric antral webs, and intestinal malrotation. If there's bilious vomiting, mid-gut malrotation and volvulus should be suspected. The child may have an annular pancreas, albeit this condition is rare. There may be lads bands due to a malrotation, or this child may be vomiting due to cow's milk protein intolerance. If you see an infant and are suspecting hypertrophic pyloric stenosis, abdominal ultrasound is the first investigation of choice. Here, a channel length of more than 16 millimetres or a pyloric thickness more than 3 millimetres or a transpyloric diameter of more than 13 millimetres raises the concern. You may also see a target sign on a transverse view and this is due to hypertrophied and hyperechoic muscle surrounding echogenic mucosa. Other signs on ultrasound include an antral nipple sign which refers to redundant pyloric mucosa protruding into the gastric antrum, and also a cervix sign, which describes the indentation of the pylorus into a fluid-filled gastric antrum. Head over to our Instagram page to see what these images look like. In addition to imaging, blood should also be taken. A full blood count, Chem 20, and venous blood gas at a minimum. The classic metabolic disturbance of these infants is hypochloremic, hypokalemic metabolic alkalosis. The hypochloremia is due to a loss of chloride in the vomitus. The metabolic alkalosis is also due to H plus loss from vomiting. The hypokalemia is caused by some loss of potassium in the vomitus but also because of activation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, which produces a loss of potassium in the urine. The urine of these infants is initially alkalotic, or has a high pH, and this is due to the metabolic alkalosis that causes increased bicarbonate to be presented to the distal tubule and subsequently eliminated, producing alkaline urine. As further dehydration ensues and the renin-aldosterone-angiotensin system comes into effect, there is extreme potassium loss in the urine as well as hyponatremia. In this case, the potassium and sodium are preferentially reabsorbed in the distal tubule of the kidney in exchange for H plus ions. This results in the classic paradoxical acid urea. These infants may also have an unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia or ictopyloric syndrome and that is due to dehydration or Gilbert syndrome. In more recent days and times, the diagnosis of a hypertrophic pyloric stenosis is made earlier and so not all infants present late with these electrolyte anomalies. Contrast studies are not the methodology of choice. However, they may be done if there is suspicion for a more distal obstruction, such as bilious vomiting and concern for malrotation or volvulus.
When these are done, you may see an elongated pyloric canal, or a string sign, or mucosa, also known as a double track sign. Let's round off with some management. In the child that acutely presents with vomiting, fluid resuscitation and stabilization of the infant is the utmost priority. Correction of electrolyte abnormalities and alkalosis needs to be prioritized. If the alkalosis is not corrected prior to surgery, it has been shown that there is an association with an increased risk of postoperative apnea. Fluids and electrolytes are often replaced and corrected over 24 hours. Some guidelines recommend 5% dextrose plus 0.45% saline plus 20 millimoles of potassium at about 150 mils per kilo over the 24 hours. These infants are also kept kneel by mouth, firstly to prevent further vomiting and secondly to fast for theatre. The ultimate management of hypertrophic pyloric stenosis is surgical. Therefore, if an infant has a suspected or diagnosed hypertrophic pyloric stenosis, a consult to paediatric surgery is required. The surgical management of this pyloric stenosis is through pyloromyotomy. The surgery itself can be done open or laparoscopically, with the latter being the preferred method in recent times. A pyloromyotomy involves splitting of the pylorus muscle whilst keeping the underlying mucosa intact. The incision extends proximal to the pyloric vein of Mayo to the gastric antrum and is about 1 to 2 centimetres in size. Postoperatively, the infant is started on IV fluids and then graded up to express birth's milk or formula a few hours later. Most infants can be discharged within 24 to 48 hours postoperatively. Most need post-anesthetic apnea monitoring and reassurance that they can tolerate feeds. Complications of a pyloromyotomy include perforation of the underlying mucosa with a risk of about 1-3%. to Bleeding and wound infection can also occur, as can recurrent symptoms due to an inadequate myotomy. However, the chance of this is less than 1%. Finally, if abdominal ultrasonography is done postoperatively, caution should be exercised when interpreting the results because thickened muscle and enlarged diameter of the pylorus persists from 8 to 12 months postoperatively. And that's been this week's Teaspoon Minisode. Join us next time for some short, sharp paediatric information. Bye!